Good morning. It's great to see everybody today. My name is Elliot. I'm the Connection Pastor here. And um, before I get into the message for today, I just want to give a quick update on Bevan, our senior pastor. As many of you know, Bevan had surgery a few um, weeks back, and he is recovering well. He actually is back working as of this last week, which is, uh, was really encouraging to see. I know many of you have been praying for him, and for that he is um, very grateful. One of the things he's working on is he's busy um, preparing for some of what we have planned for this fall, and he's also planning not only through the end of the year, but into next year as well. So as he does that, in order to give him um, some time to really focus on those different things, I'm going to be speaking not only today, but also for the next few weeks as we dive into this series, um, God Is. And I'm excited about this because I think as we kind of unpack this together, I think we're going to find that this series is um, very helpful in understanding who the God of the Bible is and also understanding um, how and what it means to have a relationship with him and how he interacts with us. So with that being said, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been in a conversation with another person and you're talking about somebody, but then you both realize or one of you realizes you're not talking about the same person? Has that ever happened to you? This happened to me actually right after my sister got married, uh, right after her wedding. Her wedding was in Texas. I came back out here and I was in an event and there was an old family friend at the event and she came up to me, and she was really excited. I could tell she was excited from across the room that she was just really excited to see me. So she comes up, and she goes, I cannot believe I know your brother-in-law's family. This is awesome. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. You're from Los Angeles. His family's from San Antonio. How in the world do you guys know each other? So I asked the obvious question, well, how do you guys know each other? So then she just launches into this long explanation of how they know each other, and she was so excited about it. She's like, well, it turns out that I know this person and this person, and because I went to college with this person, I know this person, and they married this person. And as soon as she said who got married, because she said, I know this person who married your brother-in-law's brother, I was instantly like, no, you don't know my brother-in-law. Because that's not the same person. Because at the wedding, I met his wife, and I know that that, the person you're describing, is not his wife. So then I found myself in that awkward situation where she's really convinced and she's really excited that she knows my brother-in-law's family. And I'm sitting there like, okay, I'm probably not going to see this lady for a few years. Should I really burst her bubble and tell her it's not the same guy? Or should I just kind of let her go on thinking this? Well, I did tell her. I did say, well, I, we're actually not talking about the same person. And I tried to explain it to her. She was convinced. She pushed back. But I was like, no, it's not the same person. And an interesting thing happens, actually a very similar thing happens when people talk about God. See, we use this word God, the word God gets thrown around quite often, and what's interesting is we don't just use the word, but people actually say they believe in God. Actually, in a recent poll, 90% of Americans said they believe in God. But then once you start having a conversation and you start kind of uncovering some of the details about this God that people believe in, it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly, we're not talking about the same God. And as we have discussions about this and we uncover and we ask questions and we get into the specifics and the details, it becomes clear that there are a lot of very, very different ideas about God out there. And so it's important to know in this kind of landscape where 90% of people say, I believe in God, but then there are all these different ideas about God. It's really important to know what we're talking about. Are we talking about the same God? And is what we're saying about God, is that actually accurate? So in this series, what we're going to do is we're going to explore 
for the next three weeks, this Sunday and then the next three weeks, who God is. Who does the Bible say that God is? And this is what we learn from the Bible. The first thing we learn from the Bible about who God is, is we learn that God is triune. Now, this is a word that we use to describe the God of the Bible. It's not a word that you're going to find as you flip through the pages of the Bible. It's the word Trinity is one of the words that we would use. It means triunity or three in oneness. And while we might, not ex- we might not discover this word as we flip through the pages of the Bible, the idea that it captures, what it tells us about God is an idea that runs through the entire Bible. It runs from the very beginning all the way through the end. One example is in the book of Genesis, in the very first book of the Bible. In the story of creation, it's recorded that God says this in Genesis 1.26. God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. The plural pronoun is used, which indicates there's something very unique about this God. And then again, Jesus says this when he's describing what baptism is. And, and when he's describing what baptism is, he's making the point that baptism is a symbol that somebody has entered God's family. And so they take on this name. And so this is what he says in Matthew 28. He says, baptizing them in the name, singular, name of the, and then he gives three names, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what you find as you go through the Bible is over and over and over again, you find this idea that God is triune. God is three in one. And actually, what's really interesting is in the New Testament portion of the Bible, kind of the, it's kind of the later half of the Bible if you broke it up, it focuses on Jesus' life and then the beginning of the early church. What you find is there are 70 occurrences where each one of the three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are recorded in a passage 70 times. So again, this isn't kind of just like an obscure idea that we get it from some strange verse, but this is something that comes up over and over and over again. It's all over the place throughout the entire Bible. Now, it is worth noting, as we begin to get into this idea and we talk about this triune God, it's probably, and I think it is, naturally to think this is just weird. This is, this is a weird idea. So you're telling me that to be a Christian, to believe in the God of the Bible, I've got to believe that there's one God, but there's three persons that make up God. Each one is fully God, but there's still only one God. This is just weird. Is this just one of those things you just kind of have to, you know, kind of like, you know, plug your nose and accept if you're going to become a Christian? Is that what this is? Well, the, the reality is, and this is really important for us to understand, we're going to get into this in more detail. The reality is the Trinity is not just some weird idea we have to accept. But actually, the Trinity is a truth about God that helps us understand both the world around us, and it also helps us understand ourselves. See, when we look at the world around us, there are all kinds of observations that we make. There are observations that we make about ourselves. Observations like we're moral. We have a sense of right and wrong. Observations about this desire we have to not only receive love, but to give love. Very specific kind of love. You could go on and on. There are many other observations that you can make. And what you find as you unpack this idea is those actually, they, they point back to a cause. Something put those things there, something specific. So you have to ask the question, well, what was it? Where did these come from? I mean, for me, my, my wife and I, we have two vehicles, and we'll trade off who drives which vehicle from time to time, depending on what we're doing. And something you have to know about us is I'm 6'4", I'm my wife is 5'4". So there's a pretty big height difference. 
And as you can imagine, there's a pretty big difference in where we like the seat to be in relation to the steering wheel and how we need the mirrors. So if I get in the car and the seat is moved so far forward that I have to literally move it just to get my legs in the car, and then the mirrors are shifted down and I have to shift them up, I mean, that, that seat doesn't just move on its own. Those mirrors don't just shift on their own. I mean, someone did that. Someone caused those things to happen. So the question has to be asked, well, who did this? Well, I know my wife has a key to the car, and I know how she likes the seat and how she likes the mirrors, and so then I come to the conclusion, oh, well, my wife was in the car before me, and she's the one that put it like this, and so now I've got to make some adjustments to get it how I like it. You know, it's the same thing. We, we talk about something like love. I mean, it's in movies, it's in books. People talk about it all the time. But have we asked the question, well, where did it come from? Why do we desire this so strongly? And why, I mean, it's not just kind of like a, a general, like, love that's based on, hey, they love me for what I've done, but we really want people to genuinely, freely love us. I mean, why is that? What about morality, this sense of right and wrong? Have we asked the question, where does it come from? Just like the seat in my car being moved and those mirrors being shifted, just like that points to something, it's the same thing when it comes to love and morality. See, what we find is, as we discover the God of the Bible and as we make these observations in life, what we find is the Trinity is the only cause that adequately explains the effects in the worlds that we see. And that's very important. When it comes to what we observe around us and what we experience, the Trinity is really the only thing that makes sense that this points back to. So it's not just some weird idea that, okay, well, I've just got, you know, I just kind of got to leave logic at the door and get over it and just accept it. No, this, this actually makes sense of what's going on and what we're experiencing in the way that we're wired. So let's unpack this a little more and see specifically on the Trinity what we learn about God. One of the things the Bible teaches us is that God is three persons. Now, if we're not careful when it comes to the teaching that God is three persons, we might come up with an idea that God is one person, but he goes by three separate names. You know, he, he maybe in one situation uses the name Father, in another he uses the name Son, and in another he uses the name Holy Spirit. And that might make sense because that's similar to what I would do. I mean, in certain situations, I'm a father to my children, I'm a husband to my wife, I'm a son to my parents. So that's similar to what we would do. But if we come to that conclusion, if we kind of simplify God and say, no, he's just one person and he uses these different names depending on what he's doing, if we come to that conclusion, then we're really ignoring a lot of passages that make it clear that he is three distinct persons, passages where it presents him as three persons, and each one is, is performing a different task at the same time. An example of this would be when Jesus gets baptized. When Jesus is beginning his ministry here on earth, he goes and he gets baptized, and right after he gets baptized, this is what we read, Matthew chapter 3. It says this. It says, as soon as Jesus was baptized... He went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is significant because at this moment, we see each one of the three persons of the Trinity active doing a separate task. We find the Father speaking from heaven. We find Jesus being baptized and then being spoken to by the Father in heaven. We find the Holy Spirit doesn't say he is a dove, but it describes how he descends. It says he descends like a dove, and it's painting this picture of he's, he's come and he's empowering Jesus for his ministry here on earth. 
So we find each one of the three persons, and they're all active at the same time performing different tasks. This, this Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it's not three names of one person, but it's saying, no, God is made up of three persons. They're each distinct. They're each unique. Another thing that we learn about God that's very important for us to remember and to get right is that each person is fully God. Again, the Bible makes this very clear. The, the Father's fully God. The Son is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. They're not, they're not one is partially God. One is this percent of God. One is this percent of God. One is this percent of God. They're not forces that God sends out. They're each fully God. That's what the Bible teaches. The most obvious one is the Father. I mean, over and over again, the Bible says, God the Father. So there's little discussion on is the Father fully God. But what about Jesus and what about the Holy Spirit? Well, there's one situation after Jesus' death where one of his close followers, a guy by the name of Thomas, is really wrestling with this idea of, was Jesus really God? Should I have really put my faith in him? So he's struggling with his faith. Even though some of the other followers had come to him and said, hey, we saw Jesus. He's risen from the grave. He's conquered death. We've seen him with our own eyes. He says, you know what? Until I can see the holes in his hands and until I can touch the spear hole in his side, I'm not going to believe. So then guess what happens? Well, Jesus shows up. And what does Jesus do when he shows up? He essentially says to Thomas, Thomas, this is proof. You get physical proof that I am who I claim to be. Right after Jesus does this, this is what it says, John chapter 20, verse 28. It says this, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Thomas comes to the conclusion, Jesus is God. He's fully God. And then Jesus says to Thomas, he says this, he says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. So essentially what Jesus is saying is he's affirming Thomas's conclusion. He's saying, Thomas, you're exactly right. I'm fully God. And you believe because you got to physically touch me. There's going to be a lot of people like you and like me who we don't get to physically touch Jesus. And Jesus is saying when they come to believe, that's a pretty big deal. That's pretty important. But he's affirming this idea of, yes, he is fully God. So the Son's fully God, but what about the Holy Spirit? Well, there's another passage on this one. It's, uh, in the, um, it's in a situation that arises in the early church. And what happens is, in this scenario, there's a husband and a wife, and they sell some property. And when they sell the property, they decide to give a portion of it to the church. That's great. But instead of just going and giving a portion, they decide, you know what, we're going to say we gave 100% of what we made off the sale of the land, really kind of in an attempt to make themselves look holier than they were. So the husband walks into the church, and he gives this money, and he's like, hey, by the way, this is 100% of what we got for the sale of the land. So this is what it says. This is what we read in the passage, Acts chapter 5. Then Peter said, Peter kind of functioning as the senior pastor of the early church in this time. Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Then he says, this, says you have not lied to human beings, but to God. So what Peter's doing as he addresses this man's lie is he's teaching us something very important about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit isn't a lesser being than God. The Holy Spirit isn't some, just some force or some energy that God sends out. But he's teaching us that the Holy Spirit, just like the Father, just like the Son, the Holy Spirit is God. Each one of the three persons is fully God. That is very, very important for us to understand that the Bible teaches that clearly. Then again, another thing that the Bible teaches about the Trinity, the Bible teaches us that there is one God. 
This is an idea that as you read through the Bible, you run into over and over and over again. And one of the reasons this is so important is because if we neglect this one, then we'll come away thinking, well, there's three gods. So you've got three persons, each is fully God, so there's three gods, right? Well, no, there's one God. This is what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is right after Jesus, or God has freed his people from slavery in Egypt, and he's getting ready to enter them into the promised land and fulfill the promise he's made to them. And he comes to them and he says, this is how I want you to live. And he speaks through the prophet Moses, and this is what he says to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then this, which is also important, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. The reason that second part is so important is if God is one, then you don't have to decide, okay, well, there's like five gods, so I'll give 15% of my devotion to this God and 25% to this God and 35%, and then you kind of divvy up how much do I follow each God. But if there's only one God, then where do you give your devotion? There's only one place to give your devotion. There's only one person who you should give your whole heart to, and that's God. That's the point that Moses is making as he says this. Again, this is not some obscure idea that comes just from random passages. It, it's all over the place. Another would be in, chapter, in a Romans, a book in the New Testament. It's written to one of the early churches. In Romans chapter 3, verse 30, it says this. It's pretty clear. It says, there is only one God. So as you go through and you unpack this, it becomes really clear, really apparent. Okay, there's three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each one is fully God. One is not lesser or greater than the other, but there is only one God. So we get this idea that God is triune. And again, we might sit there and go like, this is, this is kind of weird. Like, this is a difficult, complex idea that I can't really get my head around. God doesn't really fit in my little neat box where I can summarize him and make him easy to understand. But, but it's not just some weird idea that we have to accept, but when we really start to understand this, and when we start to look around us at stuff like morality, where do we get this sense of right and wrong? Love? Where do we get this desire to be loved and also to give love? Where does that come from? Just like in my car, just like the seat being moved in my car and the mirrors being shifted, those don't happen on their own. They point to something. It's the same thing. These things that we're experiencing and we're observing, it's pointing to something. And again, the reality is that this triune God of the Bible is the explanation for all these different things. I mean, let's just take morality, for example. Morality, we are, we're moral beings. We have a sense of right and wrong. We, we have this from an early age. And not only do we have this sense of right and wrong, but we have this idea that that people should treat me based on what I think the standards of right and wrong should be. So my, my ideas about right and wrong don't just apply to me, but they apply to other people because I want them to treat me based on my standards. And the implication of that is we think there should be some kind of universal standard that governs how people live and behave. I mean, and my kids, I have two amazing kids. I've got this little girl named Olivia, this boy named Cohen, and they're, they're awesome. They're a ton of fun. And what will happen is... Olivia, she's two and a half, and so she's got, this, she's got this great imagination. And she'll just sit there on the floor in the living room, and right now, we, um, this last week, we went to the beach, and we got a bunch of seashells. And she thinks that everything sounds like the ocean if you hold it up to her ear, because we were like, here, listen, the ocean. And she couldn't hear it, so now she thinks like everything. So she'll pick up like a piece of grass and be like, the ocean, you know? <laughs> but she'll like take these seashells, she'll set out all of her little, her stuffed animals, and she'll go around to each one, and she's named them all. And she'll go up to them, and she'll say their name, and she'll hold the seashell to their ear, and she'll be like, do you hear it? 
do you hear the ocean? You know, and then she'll go to the next one. She's just got this great imagination. Cohen, on the other hand, my 11-month-old, his, his imagination is not as developed as his sister's. So instead of entertaining himself like she will, he goes and he searches for entertainment. So if he's crawling across the living room floor searching for entertainment and his sister's nearby, well, where is he going to stop for entertainment? He's going to see, hey, is there anything entertaining going on here? So he'll crawl up, and he's not, he's not one of those people that he's just content being kind of a casual observer. He doesn't just want, there, want to sit there and just kind of watch what she's doing. No, he wants to, he wants to be a part of it. He wants to engage in her imaginary world. And so he interrupts her playtime. Now, how do you think my daughter responds to this? <laughs> I would love to tell you she's like, oh, come on, Cohen, you sit here, and can you hear the seashell? No, she, I mean, I wish I had a picture. We tried to get a picture yesterday, but it didn't quite work out. But I, she'll, what she'll do is she'll throw her head back, and she'll just scream. And what she's saying is she's saying, this isn't right. This is not the way the world is supposed to be. Little brothers are supposed to stay in their rooms, and they're supposed to take naps, and the door is supposed to be shut. That's right. This is wrong. This is not the way that the world is supposed to be. She has this strong sense of there's been an injustice. She has a sense of this is right and this is wrong, and Cohen has violated that. Someone needs to do something about this little one. And we actually all, we, we're similar to my little girl in this, and that we, we have this strong sense of what is right and wrong. We have this, this notion of there are morals, and they don't just apply to us, but they apply to other people. And the reason that we have this notion of right and wrong is there's one God, and he's the source of what is right and wrong. Again, if there's multiple gods, then how do we know which one is the standard for right and wrong? How do we know? I mean, if there's multiple gods, then what if this God says this and this God says this? How do we know what's really right and wrong? But if there's one God, it's pretty clear. Well, what about if God is a force? See, the God of the Bible is presented as he's not just one God, but he's a personal God. He exists in the form of three persons. And because he's a personal God, he's also a moral being just like we are. So just like we have a sense of right and wrong, he also has a sense of right and wrong. He, he has very strong opinions and ideas about this is right and this is wrong. See, if God is a force, electricity is a force. So does electricity have strong opinions and emotions about what is right and wrong? No, it just is. But if God is the God presented in the Bible, this triune God, then it makes sense of, okay, this is where we got this sense of morality from. This is what it points to. So then for us, the implication is we better make sure we're not just operating based on what we think is right and wrong, but the implication is, well, what he says is right and wrong is pretty important because he the, he's the source, he's the standard of what's right and wrong. So the Trinity helps us make sense of morals. What about something like love? What about love? Love is, love is interesting. Love is um, it's something that we... We desire, but then when we talk about love, it's not, it's not something that's coerced. We don't desire something that's forced. We desire something that's freely given. We, we want other people not to love us for what we've done, but we want them to love us just because they love us. We want it to be genuine. One of the things I, I find most shocking about the God presented in the Bible is the fact that he desires a relationship with us. And the specific kind of relationship with us that he desires is he desires a relationship that's built on love. 
that's built on this free choice to love us genuinely for who we are. That's amazing if you think about it. I mean, I, I, there's many different kinds of relationships that we can have. One of the relationships that I'm currently in is with the internet company. And my wife and I were kind of those classic millennials. We, we don't have a landline for our telephone. We cut the cord on cable. So we just use the internet for everything. And when it comes to the internet company, hey, as long as they give me the speed that I want at a competitive price, then I'm going to keep their services. If that changes, if I don't get the speed that I want, the service that I want, and you know, if the price suddenly goes up without explanation and it's not competitive, then I will and I have switched internet providers because it's all about what they can give to me and what I can give to them. I give them, I pay my bill, I give them cash. They give me something useful in the form of internet. It's really a relationship that's built on a commodity. It's really about economics. It's about what can I do for them, this is what I give to them, what can they do for me, this is what they give to me. If, if we sit and we think about it, and we ask ourselves the question, okay, when it comes to love, some religions will teach that there's only, different than the God of the Bible, there's one God, but there's not three persons that make up God. It is just, it's one. There's one God, one person. One of the challenges with this is then the question has to come, okay, well, where did love come from? Who did, who did God love before he created? And then the implication is, well, God had to create us in order for there to be love. So he would need us in order to love us, but then we would need to do certain things in order to love him. It couldn't be at the core of his being. It would be dependent upon his creation. Again, you start to get into this commodity, this economic-type relationship. And you study other religions, what's really interesting is how a lot of religions teach this idea that that when it comes to God, what, what we need to focus on is what ritual can we perform? What sacrifice can we give to, to make the God happy or to make the gods happy? How can we please this God so that this God will be happy with us and then this God will give us what we want? Again, you boil it down, and it's really just an economic relationship just like I have with the internet company. What do I have to do to get this God's love? What do I have to give to get this God's love? There's this exchange. It's not really a relationship built on love. It's a relationship that's built on economics. It's built off of a commodity. That is so different than the God of the Bible. This is what it says in 1 John. We're talking about the God of the Bible. It says this. It says in chapter 4, it says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. If God is love, if it's at the core of his being, then the question has to be asked, who did he love before he created? There was no one to love. But you see, in the Trinity, what you find in this triune God, this God that we might look at and say, that's just a weird idea. What we find is the three persons existing for all time, you know what? They were loving each other. They were committed to one another. They were completely unified. It opens up the possibility for love to be at the core of who he is. Because of the Trinity, you can say God is love. If there's no, other, if there's no one else around for God to love, how can you say that God is love? But because of the Trinity, it helps explain that. The passage then goes on and helps us understand this love even more and helps us understand both what we desire and the way that God loves us. This is what it says in verse 9. It says, this is how God showed his love among us. So he makes a statement. He sent his one and only son into the world 
that we might live through him. And then he says it pretty much all over again. He says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The point that this is making is something that we know. Love is not a matter of economics. Real love is not about what I can do or what I receive. Real love is a choice that's freely given because we genuinely care for and love the other person. Because of the triune nature of God, he doesn't need our love. So he doesn't love us to be loved by us. He loves us because he genuinely loves us. And if, if you look at this and you, say, and, you, and you read this where it says, like, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice, what that's pointing out is something that we witness every day on the news. We've made a mess of this world. This world is pretty messed up. But even though it's messed up, God said, I'm still going to love them. That's only possible because of the God that we find in the Bible. And so it wasn't about what we could do or what we had done. It was actually in spite of what we had done. And he says, you know what? I still love them because he's fully satisfied in himself. He doesn't need anything from us. So his love for us is, it's about, he just loves us. I mean, if that doesn't blow your mind, I mean, like, that just gets me excited But that's what we find when we sit and we study the God of the Bible and we realize that this God is three persons, each person is fully God, and there's only one God. That's what explains the love that we crave, the love that we desire to receive, the love that we desire to give. The reason we have that is because its source comes from God. And he made us, and so he put that in us. He is the cause that resulted in us being the way that we are, and he's the only one that can satisfy that, again, because of who he is. And the Bible explains how that works. Now it is, again, it's worth admitting that this God of the Bible, he, he, you can't just package him up neatly and put him in your little box. I mean, if he was something that we had created, then we could probably get our heads fully around him and understand every aspect of him and then kind of put him in our little box because we had created him, we knew everything about him. But the reality is he's a being far greater than us and he's far bigger than us and he's far more complex than we are. So while we might not be able to know everything there is to know about this God that created us, there's still a whole lot that we can know. And I think one of the temptations is sometimes when we encounter a teaching like this about God that is difficult for us to get our heads around. The temptation might be, you know what, that's, that's pretty complex. So I'm, I'm not going to dive into that anymore. I'm not going to seek to understand that anymore. I'm just going to kind of leave it there. You know, it's complex. It's kind of weird. I'm just going to, I'm going to move on and try to understand something else. What's interesting is we actually don't do this in other areas of life. I mean, tomorrow, there's going to be this total eclipse. We only get to see the partial, but some, some parts of the U.S. are going to see this total eclipse. Millions of people are going to line up. I mean, I was watching the news last night. They were talking about some states, it's going to be the worst gridlock they've ever seen because of the number of people and the number of people on the roads that are trying to see this thing. And not just do you have pedestrians lined up all across the U.S. watching this, you actually have a lot of scientists. And the reason the scientists are out there is because they know the sun has very real impacts on our lives and on the planet. And so they don't know everything there is to know about the sun, and they want to learn more about the sun. And this eclipse gives them an opportunity to discover things that they might not know about the sun. They don't sit there and say, you know what, it's... 109 times wider than we are. You know, you could fit over a million of our Earths inside of the sun. 
You know, it's like 93 million miles away. You know what? That's just, it's way too complex. It's way too big. I don't really want to know anything else there is to know about the sun. We'll just leave it out there and ignore it. No, they say, you know what? This has very real impacts on us. And so we're going to study it. Well, even more important than understanding the sun is understanding the God of the Bible. The God who is there, the God who created us, this triune, three-in-one God. And as we unpack and discover more about this God, who he is, how each person performs separate tasks, how they relate to us, as we understand him and learn how to know him better, it helps us make sense of our lives, our purpose, where we're going, what we're all about, what he wants us to do. It helps us discover what's going on. And so while this might be a difficult idea, it's, it is incredibly important for us to take the time and say, I might not be able to get my head around all of this, but I want to know more about this God that God has presented in the Bible. So what I want to do is, is if we continue this series, I want to invite you to come back. Because next week and the following weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to take each person and we're going to unpack, okay, this is the individual person, but what do they do? How does that impact us? How does that relate to us? How are we to relate to them? What are the implications for us in our life? So next week, what we're going to do is we're going to start with the Father. And we're going to discover God is the Father. And what does that mean? What does he do? And we're going to specifically talk about what it means for God to watch over us. What kind of impact does that have on our lives? So I want to invite you, as we dive into this series, to continue to come back and to learn more and more about the God who's presented in the Bible. If you'll join me. We'll wrap up in prayer. Father God, I, um, I come before you and I thank you for the fact that you are not some simple idea that's easy for us to get our heads around, but you are, you are greater than us. Uh, you are bigger than us, and because of that, we can find purpose and significance in you. I thank you for the fact that when you created you you left traces of yourself. You installed reflections of who you are all around us that point back to you. I thank you that we don't just have to, you know, kind of blindly take this, but we, as we think through this, as in we work through these ideas, they point back to you and your greatness and how amazing you are. So, Father, as we not only studied this this morning, but as we dive into this more, my, my request is that our view of you would increase our appreciation for how amazing you are would get bigger because we would see that you are a big, amazing God who has done an enormous amount for us. I thank you again for this morning that we get to be here. In Jesus' name, amen.